My name is Kim Vu. I live and work in Santa Monica, California. I'm the executive chef and owner of Vucatious Catering. Um, we are a mid-sized catering company and we cater for both corporate events and private and social events. We do specialize in event-based catering. I knew you were like an amazing chef because Frankie has told me a million times, but it wasn't until her birthday, like I went to your kitchen thing, but that was more like appetizers and right. alcohol. When you did the whole 10 course dinner for Frankie's birthday, I have told so many people about those roasted tomatoes that you've made. <laughs> and I am not a tomato person. Like I am ambivalent about them. Like I'll eat them sometimes, but I just have to be like in a real mood to have tomatoes. And those things were so good. Oh, I'm so glad you enjoyed that. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of instant gratification in cooking for people because you hear feedback like that. Mm -hmm. You made something that I really did not even eat until I was an adult. Like something that I think about all the time. That's funny. I hear that all the time from people, but I eat everything as a child, so I can't relate. <laughs> so your parents and your family just were very experimental or like, why, why did you? No, I think, you know, I grew up in a traditional immigrant family. We ate the food of our people, you know, mm -hmm. of our country. Um, my mom cooked on a daily basis in order to give us that food. And we lived near an immigrant community, a Vietnamese community, so I'm Vietnamese. And by American standards, the food would be considered weird and mm -hmm. a little bit odd for children to eat. But in Vietnam, people don't typically make different food for children. So in America, you might see a family eating, you know, like a steak and potato dish, but the child is eating, you know, a grilled cheese sandwich, you know, or something like that. And in Vietnam, the equivalent to that would be like, you know, you're eating like a fish dish with rice and vegetables, and maybe the kid is just going to have rice with some broth on it. But you're not actually eating some sort of separate meal. Um, and so you really get to learn to eat all those things. I know you said that you grew up in an immigrant community. So did you feel that, like for instance, when you were in school, did you bring your lunch to school? So I didn't bring my lunch to school, okay. and that was because of my immigrant mom. This is the most interesting part. So to me, I always wanted to bring my lunch to school because naturally you want what you don't have or you can't have. But my mom, buying your lunch at school represented two different things to her. One, that you had money. Mm -hmm. And secondly, she it was very important to her that we all ate a hot lunch. That's a very big deal in my culture and in my household because a, a hot lunch is deemed more healthy for you, it's more fresh, it's going to be more flavorful, and that's what she always wanted for us. Um, by junior high, there was a set of friends that I would sit with lunch every day, and they all brought their lunch, and I was the only one who bought my lunch. And I begged my mom, please let me bring my lunch, you don't have to make it, I'll make it myself, I know how to do it. And she said, absolutely not, you're gonna need a hot lunch every day at school. It's gonna be better, it's going to be healthier for you. Um, and for many years, she brought my father a hot lunch every day to his office. So that was very important for her, for us to eat a hot lunch. That represented a lot of things to her. Now in retrospect, do you think seeing your mother have so much pride and care in cooking for the family and think that that influenced you eventually moving into no no cooking? not really so I mean I've I've actually always had a strong interest in cooking um, and also chemistry which is my major from Caltech and then and I've always been experimental in the kitchen I cooked from a very young age but not necessarily with my family and that's not something that I did with my mom but no it was just it was I mean I really came to cooking in a completely different way 
How did you come up with the name? I know Vucatius obviously is a, a mixture of your last name and I don't know, what is the Vucatius? Vucatius. So, okay. <laughs> I knew from the beginning of my business that I wanted to grow my business big. And I was very hesitant about building the brand around me because what that says to me is that, you know, will I be able to step away from my business? And if I step away from my business in order to scale the business, you know, what will be the identity of the business after I leave, you know, daily operations? Mm -hmm. So it was actually of great concern to me whether or not to name the business after myself. So it was not ever going to be Kim Vu Catering or, or Kim Vu Cooks or Kim's Culinary Adventures, anything like that whatsoever, because I knew I was going to scale this business and scale it big. And I worked with a brand manager. What came up again and again was that it was going to be very, very hard not to center the branding around me. Especially given the current climate. The current climate is that, you know, people are very into celebrity chefs. Um, so Vucatius really came from a combination of my last name and thinking of all of the elements we wanted to convey to the customer, my client. So Vucatius, you know, that end chefs, it's all the chefs words. And mm -hmm. you'll notice that all the chefs words have so it's a like lot delicious, of, but then it was like there's like <laughs> delicious, luscious vivacious there's really a lot going on and the words that tend to end are they are descriptive words but they tend to be luxurious words at the same time yeah. and that was something that was a good fit actually a, a very interesting branding story is that very early on in our branding after we had already gone public with the name a very smart uh, friend of a friend said why isn't the name Vivacious catering because it's closer Do you know, to you know, vivacious. I have done that so many times with your business, like going on Google, because when we were going for Frankie's birthday party, I kept typing in vivacious and it wouldn't come up. And I was like, I've been there. I've been there before. Why can't I find it? And then I realized that it is not vivacious. That's right. And so, and it's, it's part and parcel because in many ways, I'm an old school marketing person. I believe that when you hear um, the name of a business, and especially my business is a brick and mortar business, so I'm not a tech company. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not an online company. I'm a brick and mortar company. So if someone drives past my business, they need to know what my business is on their drive by, which is about a half a second. Yeah. So the full name of my business is Vucatious Catering. Because I want people to understand right away, I'm a caterer. Yeah. If I had just named the business Vucatious, well, that could really be anything. Um, and that, of course, is the convention nowadays for a lot of like media companies or um, tech companies, no matter what sector they're working in. But that's not really going to work for me as a yeah. brick and mortar. And so I chose the Vucatious because of the alliteration with the catering. So it's Vucatious Catering. Mm. So it was a very specific choice. And the URL was available. Vucatious Catering was not available. Mm. Or Vucatious.com was not available. There's a placeholder and, you know, the person won't give it up. But I actually scrambled to try to get that URL and try to change the name because I did think that that was a very um, good play. But at the end of the day, I'm actually really glad where yeah. our brand ended up because with the vivacious name, it's clearly a play on vivacious. And while some people might describe that as my personal personality, that is not necessarily the professional personality of my corporation. We are an LLC and, you know, we already have eight full-time employees and 20 more part-timers. So it's a big business. Mm -hmm. And also with our corporate events, 
being vivacious is not always the vibe Mm -hmm. that you want to convey. You know, perhaps you're doing a really serious corporate event or a gala fundraiser, but for a very serious cause for cancer. Perhaps you're catering a huge memorial service. You know, while the food will stand on its own, it's not an appropriate feeling in all cases. And so I'm actually really pleased and glad where the business ended up. Mm -hmm. Um, I was told by a a very smart and well-respected marketer um, in in Los Angeles, a man named Sasha, you know, I'd asked him, I said, you know, I'm really struggling with my name. This is where my name ended up, but it's a strange name. People can't pronounce it. They can't spell it, so on and so forth. And he said, you know what? My business is called X, and he goes, and I can't tell you how many people say, you know, is your business Y? (laughs) So, and he said it hasn't made a difference. The work product will speak for itself. And so while we are seeking really good marketable names and catchy names, at the end of the day, it's really the work product that speaks for itself. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So we talked a little bit about your life growing up. But um, tell me a little bit more about your life before high school. I grew up in Houston, Texas, um, and I have six brothers and sisters. Shut up. I do. I, have I thought six. it was just the three of you, no, the, no, no. the sisters. I have six brothers and sisters, Shut five up. of whom use, uh, live in the U.S., um, and then f- and the five who live in the U.S. are my natural blood siblings, and then the sixth sibling is an adopted sibling who lives in Vietnam still, and he never immigrated. Um, and so we grew up in the southwest side of Houston, Texas, in a suburb called Sugarland. It is not a small suburb; it would be akin to you know where we are now in Santa Monica. So it's actually quite a large suburb. Is the country band named after your city? Yes, I believe so. Okay. You know, so um, and and Sugarland is called Sugarland because it's the home of the Imperial Sugar Company, uh-huh. and so it used okay. to be sugarcane fields. And so I grew up there um, in a quite actually well-to-do neighborhood. My parents did very well for themselves as, as immigrants. So it was really a wonderful growing up. Did they I get mean, married and then they moved here or did they meet in the U.S.? They, well, it's a complicated story. They met in Vietnam. Okay. They immigrated separately because they left during the, the flight. So in 1975, at the end of April, mm-hmm. there was an evacuation of the city of Saigon. It's now called Ho Chi Minh City. And so they were were a part of the evacuation. My mother had done some work for the American government, and my father worked as a part of the South Vietnamese Army. So really leaving the city and the country was more about self-preservation. They were sure to either be jailed, re-educated, uh, and don't let re-education fool you, it's brainwashing, oh, okay. um, or executed. And so it was a you know uh, fight or flight uh, with a low chance of coming out of the fight So fight it was. So they actually each immigrated separately to the U.S. They both ended up in refugee camps. My father was first in Guam, then he was transferred to the U.S. And then by coincidence, they were reunited. And so... How in the world did they find each other? So what happened was that my older brother, Chow had kept a picture of my father. This is particularly significant because my father is not Chow's natural biological father. Um, So Chow's technically my Mm half-brother. We share the same mother. But for whatever reason, he kept a picture of my father. And they published the picture as in, you know, looking for this person, looking for reunification. My... One of my parents 
was in Chicago. I can't remember if it was Chicago or Arkansas. And the other Those. was on, yeah, <laughs> totally different, but somewhere towards the middle. And the other was on the East Coast. Okay. And what ended up happening was that one day my father went to the office. So whatever office that there could be in the refugee camp, he saw a posting of himself. And had he not gone in the office, because notifications are posted in the office. But what refugee goes in the office? No refugees go into the office. So it's actually kind of a weird coincidence. He saw a picture of himself that's basically saying, like, wanted, looking for this person, reunification. He said, oh, my God, that's me. So, you know, at the time, there were really mixed feelings towards refugees and immigrants. Uh, as, as there, there is, is now, now. <laughs> as there is now, um, but you know some, but but also there were some friendly people. So what happened was that they were reunified um, after that, and so my father met up with my mom, and then uh, you know the there were already my two brothers and my older sister were in existence, and they became a family, and they actually remarried here. So they were together in Vietnam as a couple, and my father cared for them. Uh, but they weren't technically married because my mother was not a Catholic and my father is a Catholic. Mm-hmm. And then they were married a few years. They were legal. I would say they were legally married a few years after my birth. Wow. That is such a coincidence. Like you go into this place and you're like, wait, that's me on the wall. Yes, it's very odd. And so, and I will interject um, especially given our political climate, I was the anchor baby. So <laughs> you were the one who allowed the chain yes. migration. <laughs> yes, I allowed a huge chain of migration and naturalization. So <laughs> why um, do you know why your older brother decided not to? Come? Well, basically, he got lost. So at the time, uh, at the time of the flight, it it really was. A flee for your life situation, which is why my parents ended up immigrating separately. So the way that my parents got separated is in part because my father went to go look for this brother that was too scared to come. Mm. And, you know, at the end of the day, he just had to leave. He became a stowaway on a military boat, which is how he ended up in Guam. And, you know, we actually have a very interesting interview. Me and my younger sisters have uh, started an interviewing process of my parents to really record these stories um, of their immigration because they are fantastical stories that we can't even imagine. Um, And, you know, I was was born here. Mm -hmm. So it's, and it's not anything that I could even remotely relate to at all, Mm -hmm. even though I consider myself to be Vietnamese over American. Mm -hmm. So, but no, so he got left behind for a very long time. There was an information and travel embargo between the U.S. and Vietnam. There was really very little communication back and forth, and foreign nationals were not able to travel home. And so we lost our connections to our families. And interestingly enough, my mother, uh, in the 90s, people were just starting to really begin to freely travel back and forth uh, from Vietnam and also to communicate, and she paid a private investigator to find him. But at that point, you know, we're talking about it's been 20 years. He's an adult person with a wife and children and a job. And after all that time, he did not any longer have a desire to immigrate to the U.S. Mm -hmm. So he's there because he put down his roots. But you were able to find him. Yes. Okay, so you said that you consider yourself more American? No, No, more more Vietnamese. Vietnamese. That's right. I really... Why? So what's interesting about me is that, you know, I'm not 
a true first generation, even though I was born here. So I have immigrant parents who immigrated here who had me shortly thereafter. But my siblings, who are part of my generation, my older siblings, were born in Vietnam. The primary language spoken in my house is Vietnamese. To this day, my parents do not speak English. My father does speak English because he worked outside of the home. My mother speaks English when she wants to. <laughs> Um, but other than that, we are not an English-speaking family. Mm -hmm. Vietnamese was my first language. That is my first food. And we lived um, both in and near our immigrant community. And I think that when you have that experience, the relationship you have to your home country is very strong. Um, and it translates into a very different way. I think really differently about family, about work, about money. Um, there are many thoughts and attitudes that I have that are strikingly much more Vietnamese. Um, What's an example? Well, I have strong opinions about work and laziness. <laughs> so, and I need ethic. to hear these thoughts. <laughs> I mean, maybe so, I need to adopt the Vietnamese way of these two things. What well, is, I'll, you know, things? I'll give you I'll give you an example about excellence okay. in my family and in many Asian cultures. It is really important to be excellent, no matter what it is that you are doing. And when you are excellent, I think, I will back up a little bit. In Vietnam and in many Asian cultures, there is much more of an emphasis on being part of a group and going along rather than being an individual. Okay. And when you are an excellent person, although you are achieving this as an individual, it's really about honor. So we would say that when we are excellent, we honor our parents. Okay. When you are excellent, you honor your teacher. When you are excellent, you honor your family. When you are excellent, you honor your grandparents. So as a result, and you know, even though there are multiple generations of Asians today, you know, there is a stereotype of sort of, like, say for example, academic performance. And while a, a modern Asian American may not know where that attitude comes from, it's really about this idea of collective, you know, this collective excellence. You are excellent as an individual, but what you're really doing is honoring a collective village that helped to raise you, your yeah. teacher, your parents, your grandparents parents, your family name, your siblings. And so um, that's really something that I've ascribed to over the years, and it really affects my work. Um, that's not to say that Americans, there are not excellent Americans. There's many excellent Americans, but when Americans think about excellence, it's really about themselves. The American stories of excellence are about a person rising out of poverty by themselves, without help, by their bootstraps, right? And so, yeah. um, which may or may not be true. Mm -hmm. There are certainly people who do it on their own, but, um, you know, in, in my culture, uh, not only do we do it for ourselves, but we really are doing it for everyone else first. Mm -hmm. So that's one way that I'm thinking about, you know, what I'm doing, um, which has, uh, to be perfectly honest, impacted me both positively and negatively over the years, you know, as it would for, for any person in my position. And I think also for Americans in the reverse, it impacts, you know, Americans, the way they're thinking about excellence, both positively and negatively. Yeah. Okay. So you, what were some of your interests and things you liked to do when you were younger? Well, I loved dancing. <laughs> so that's a really fun one. Did you Just take very formal classes? I did jazz, ballet, all the dance classes. Um, did you have a favorite? Uh, jazz. I'm a jazz dancer oh, to the core. Okay. So Bob Fosse is my thing. <laughs> so um, jazz dance. Um, I sang in the church choir. So I came up in the church choir. 
And I loved to read. Reading was a revelation for me from the very beginning. And I, am, I have always been a voracious reader. Um, but, you know, in athletics. And so I really you loved... everything. I did. I did everything. I was the high school t- student. I went to school at 6 in the morning. I didn't come home till 6 at night. Mm. You know, and mom was my taxi driver. Thank, <laughs> thank goodness for her. So... <laughs> okay. So... What type of high school did you go to? I went to two different high schools. So I first went to a public, so I went to public high school. So I should back up and say I went to public school in the suburbs of Houston, Texas, a school called Kempner High School. The school district there is known for being a very good school. And so, you, you could know, go and get a free education. I could and go and get, and get a free get a education. education. But I actually left high school early. So I left high school after the 10th grade to attend an early admissions college program. So after the 10th grade, I went to college. Um, I went to college at the University of North Texas, where through college credit was awarded like a GED or high school diploma, but while earning two years of college credit. So I technically attended college without any high school diploma of any kind, but after two years of college, I was awarded a high school diploma. So why did you, how did you know about that, that? program and what made you decide to do it? I learned about this program. So very early on in my academic career, so I will say that I had an academic career. That was that was my career as a student. And early on in my academic career, I had very good teachers who identified me um, as gifted and talented. And in Texas, there is the GT program, the gifted and talented program. And after lots and lots and lots of testing, you can be in a regular academic class, you can be in an honors class, or you can be in a gifted and talented class. And then through the gifted and talented program um, that were available in the public schools in Texas, I was I was made aware of other programs. So during my summers, unlike other students going to volleyball camp, tennis camp, basketball camp, I would go to things like engineering camp and math camp, which I really enjoyed, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, engineering camp is a real thing. I was attending classes at the University of Houston between 7th and 8th grade and between 8th and 9th grade. Between 6th and 7th grade, I actually attended a camp for AutoCAD. At that time, AutoCAD was new. If you don't know what AutoCAD mm-hmm. is, that is computer-aided drafting and design, and that was something that was very new. So when I was 11 years old, my summer between 6th and 7th grade was attending a training program to learn how to use the AutoCAD program. Um, where we designed, you know, things that machines could build. Uh, And so each summer starting from sixth grade on was spent in some sort of engineering or math or science related program. And this continued on um, through the Houston PrEP program. So PrEP stands for the Pre-Freshman Engineering Program, which I attended at the University of Houston. Uh, I was made aware of another program called TAMS. And that is where I ended up at college. So TAMS is known as the Texas Academy of Math and Science. So as you can hear, this is a very math and science oriented Mm -hmm. um, academic upbringing. You know, basically my parents put me in a think tank. But I motivated all this. They they are not English speakers and they didn't know any about any of these programs. I actually got the information for the TAMS program myself. I made my mother or father drive me to the orientation. I got the application packet and I did the application on my own. Um, I was accepted. My parents were very confused. They said, where are you moving to? This is, where are you going? I said, I was accepted to college. Okay, but you're only 14, 15, you know, what's happening? And so I decided to do that on my own. Um, I just thought... 
the University of North Texas in relation to Houston? Um, it's in Dallas, Texas. If okay. you drive really fast, it's like four and a half hours. Wow, so you were like really away. Yes, I went family. away when I was 15. I went to college and I couldn't even drive a car. How much convincing of your parents did you have to do? Um, not much. Okay. You know, I, it, it was. it's very prestigious. Okay. It's very academic. And it was very safe. You know, you're going to live in a dormitory with RAs. With like 18-year-old kids? 15-year-old kids. Oh, so um, all of the... Yes, every, okay. so my dorm was specific to my program. Okay. There were um, 400 students in the program, so 200 in the first wow. year, because it's a two-year program. Mm -hmm. So two year, 200 first-year students and 200 second-year students. Um, pretty evenly split male and female, so 100 incoming first-year girls. So you would live on the girls' floor. So, you know, it's a um, one dormitory, but sex-separated floors with RAs, curfews, and the whole thing. Um, it did not take much convincing. I told my parents, this is where I'm going. Um, it was free, um, partially free, because in Texas, the law says that the children are, uh, children are entitled to a free K through 12 education. So and because I did not have a high school diploma, it was technically K through 12 education. My parents were responsible for paying for the room and board. Okay. And so we had to pay a room and board, but otherwise the tuition and the textbooks were free. Um, and so that's how I ended up there. Wow. It had it not been free, I probably could not have attended. Mm -hmm. You know, there was just a lot of mouths to feed at home. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up at the Texas Academy of Math and Science, where you are taking classes along with 18-year-old freshmen, um, just straight into the college classes. And it was a phenomenal experience. There were actually really excellent, amazing teachers there. And it just spurred on a continuation of my love of learning already. Yeah, that's really cool. Wow. And then after that, my I ended up at Caltech. Okay. So back at North Texas and that experience, you said it was like an amazing experience. So... Um, When you finished up there and you decided to go to Caltech, what did you think you wanted to do and why? I, until this day, I already knew from the time I was probably a first or second grader that I was definitely going to be going to medical school and that I was definitely going to be a doctor. Mm. And so I was going to Caltech um, to, you know, I wanted to go to the best science school that there was. I applied to a lot of different schools, um, mostly very prestigious schools. I did have some backup schools, my state schools, but really didn't consider them seriously. I chose Caltech on a recommendation of my high school biology teacher, actually. So she said to me in my classroom, uh, back at my regular high school, I think that you should go to Caltech. Mm. Not knowing anything about the school whatsoever, I requested an application and I applied. Mm. And um, when I began visiting my schools, basically when I got on the campus of Caltech, I knew I wanted to be there. I had to be there. So what type of support did North Texas provide as far as the next step after you finished? Um, not much. Um, you know, it's hard for, re for me to remember that. It was over 20 years ago. So, um, I mean, there must have been some sort of like application. I mean, we were all doing it together. We were all... We were all doing college applications to leave the program. Um, there were counselors. I didn't really interact with those counselors whatsoever. 
um, you know, I can't remember what kind of support was provided to me, but just like getting into that program, that's just something I largely did on my own, you know, and, and, and I feel like we all did. Our parents didn't live with us. We didn't live with our parents. Um, and the RAs that lived in the dorm with us, that was not their function to support our college applications. And we did have, you know, one counselor, maybe two for the entire 400 student body. So I think that, but I think that at that point, you know, we had already done applications. Mm -hmm. And so the next step for us was just to do it again, to go to our final college. What was it about when you visited that let you know that this was where you should be? You know, both choosing to go to the TANS program and going to Caltech for me was really about freedom. Um, as much as I want to highlight the positive parts of growing up as an Asian immigrant, there are some negatives as well. And the culture is very restrictive. It's very conservative, um, as is growing up in Texas, as is being a woman. Mm-hmm. So given all those three factors together, you know, my moving forward in my academic career, going away from home, choosing a place, choosing to go to college in California, um, which, by the way, people in Texas think everyone in California is just, they're just crazy hippie people, um, which we are. Uh, <laughs> but it was really about freedom. So I really only visited two schools before making my decision. I, I visited Cal Berkeley and I visited Caltech. That's even more hippy dippy than... Sure, absolutely. And that really wasn't for me. Like, I'm actually not that bohemian. So, um, but it was really about freedom because when I got to Caltech for my pre-freshman visit, the things that I heard was that you can do what you want here. If you have an idea, if you have a project, if you want to put together your own curriculum, we will support you in that. We will provide you with the materials, the professors. Um, I mean, it's got to be within reason, but it was very open Um, It was very free thinking. I felt very supported there during that weekend. And I had no idea until I visited the school how small the student body was. And I remember thinking about Berkeley. Um, There was actually a professor at Berkeley that I had wanted to do research with. His name is Peter Duesberg. And at that time, he was doing some really transformative work uh, on reverse uh, DNA. And... When I got to Caltech, what I really realized was that at as big of a school as Berkeley is, Peter Duesberg would never know my name. Mm -hmm. I would never be selected or have an opportunity to do research as an undergraduate. I would never, that that just would not be in the cards for me. And at Caltech, there was such a strong emphasis on undergraduate research Mm -hmm. um, and freedom to think and freedom to learn. And I was attracted to it immediately And I was attracted to the idea that I was not going to be another number or another cog in the wheel. And so I made my decision then to end up at Caltech. How small is Caltech? This undergraduate student body is 1,000 students. And then there are an additional 1,000 graduate students. And we do our commencement every June in two hours from 10 to noon. And we graduate every department, every degree. In one In two hours, we graduate bachelor's, master's, and PhD in a two-hour ceremony from every department in one single commencement for the entire university. (laughs) (laughs) Then the other one's like, we have to do our department's graduation at this time and at this place, and you don't see anyone Absolutely. Both my sisters went to giant universities and Mm -hmm. said that's how it was. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, how did you pay for college? 
oh my gosh, I, I robbed the, I robbed <laughs> Peter to pay the piper. No. Um, so a lot of different ways. I, I worked, I received at federal, Caltech. I worked at Caltech. Okay. Um, so when I was at TAMS, the tuition and books were free and my parents paid for room and board by charging it on their credit cards. So that's how that wow. got done. When I went to Caltech, my mother said to me, uh, we cannot support you financially. Good luck. And so I got on an air, they, they took me to the airport and put me on an airplane and I went to Caltech. That's how I got here. Um, there was no driving me across. There was no taking me to college. My uncle picked me up at the airport. I spent the night at his house and the next day he drove me to Pasadena. That was it. Um, and, and actually this is not uncommon for a Caltech student. We have student envoys that will go meet students at LEX and go pick up other undergrads uh, to bring them to their first day of school. So I had federal financial aid. Mm-hmm. I had state financial aid. I had, How were you able to get state financial? Oh, just like well, it's loans. a private school. Okay. So I had well, I had federal financial aid mm-hmm. in the form of loans and grants. Okay. I also had state financial aid in the form of loans and grants. Okay. I also had a grant from the school that it, itself. So of course the loans I have to pay back, and the mm-hmm. grants are free money. Mm-hmm. And then I had work study funds, which I converted to loans, and I worked on top of that. At um, my highest workload, I had three jobs at Caltech. And so, you know, but when you are 18, you don't need much sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, did you major in chemistry? Biology and chemistry. So you were a double major. It was a double, but at Caltech, those two majors are very closely okay. related to each other. So it was, there was a tremendous amount of overlap. It just, it was not a lot of extra to have to, it wasn't like saying doing biology and like, you know, classics or English or something like that. That's crazy. Okay. So you did the program at North Texas. How did those credits help did they help out with so course load or anything like that? They did. So I was able to receive, even though I was at college for two years prior to coming to Caltech, I was able to receive one year of credit. Okay. At Caltech, as it is a private um, university with a strong academic program, they actually don't allow credits to transfer from anywhere. What you must do is you must take, to, in order to receive a credit for a class that you believe that you're qualified to receive credit for, you take the final exam. So before you attend school, you request all of the final exams of the classes you would like to receive credit for. They mail you all the final exams, and you take them at home, and you mail them back. Um, And they trusted the students to not cheat? It's a part of the Caltech Honor Code. Okay. Um, We have a very short and swift honor code that the entire community takes extremely seriously. And... Breaking the honor code is resultant in expulsion. It's very serious. Okay. The Caltech honor code goes like this. <laughs> no member of the Caltech community shall take advantage of any other member of the Caltech community. End quote. That is our honor code. And so cheating on your exam would be taking advantage of another member. Did um, you know of anyone who was expelled? Sure, uh, sure. We're so eighteen-year-olds. Yeah. We try to be like, oh, well, I can get away with this. Nope. Sure, you know, it's yeah, it happens. Um, and so some of the exams were sent to you. So first, there was an assessment. So they send you your assessment exams. They might send you some final exams. You have to send back final exams. You also have to send back your syllabi 
syllabuses, syllabi, you know, for the mm -hmm. classes. Some classes you are not able to place out of remotely. You must take your final exams upon arrival at Caltech. Okay. And then you'll be assessed and then placed accordingly. So um, I I only placed out of one year's worth. That's a um, lot. That sounds like at, a, at Caltech lot is a lot At Caltech, that's really a lot. Um, so several of my classmates at TAMS did not go on to private schools. A lot of them stayed at state schools. So in the state of Texas, if you attend any accredited four-year university, your credits transfer um, sort of, I'll say, without hindrance. So I could have stayed at the University of North Texas or gone to any other accredited Texas school, public school, that is, like uh, UT, for example, and the credits would have just transferred. Mm -hmm. So I would have been two years ahead of the game. Yeah. But I made a different choice, mm -hmm. you know, and I thought it was worth it. Oh, yeah. Okay. So what, what is your fondest memory at Caltech? Oh my gosh, there's so many. <laughs> so, um, I mean, there really are so many. Um, what can I think about? Okay, I'll give you, I'll give you like a social example. I'll give you an academic example. So one of the most hardest classes I ever took at Caltech was a statistics class. As a biology major, uh, well, first of all, you should know at Caltech that every student, regardless of major, has to take something like, you know, six quarters of math and six quarters of physics, and it doesn't matter. So I'm a biology major, which, you know, people think does not have to do a lot with physics, but you have to take six quarters of physics. So I've taken general relativity. I've taken all kinds of classes, and that is part of the core curriculum of Caltech. So part of that is statistics, and I had failed. Um, a statistics class which forced me to have to take the next level statistics class because the first level statistics class became canceled because it's a very small university. <laughs> so, so yeah, I failed this class, but I'm going to make you take the next level of it. That's exactly right. <laughs> so because we're techers. Um, and so it was Math 112. I still remember it. Gary Lorden was the professor. Excellent, friendly, amazing fellow. And so I had already taken a statistics class, but I took like statistics for Caltech dummies, but the other students in class were like Caltech math statistics gurus, and and I was confusing the concepts. And to be quite honest, it was it was a very hard class for me. Students would get up in the front of the class and they would say things like this. They would say, "Clearly, you would use a two-tailed T-test test instead of the one-tailed T-test." And so this was my method. Then the answer came to this. For me, I couldn't even approach the problem because I was already stuck at, how did you know to use the two-tailed T-test versus the one-tailed T-test, right? And so, um, but I was at office hours all the time with Professor Lorden, and he said to me one day, with great pity and sympathy in his heart, Kim, you are such a good student. Aww. But I was a miserable statistics student, <laughs> and I just tried, but I tried so hard in that class. And at the end of the day, I, I, you know, it was my only B during my senior, my junior or senior year, I think it was possibly my senior year. The only B that I made in the last two years of school was a B plus, but I know you I deserved- You damn hard for that B plus. I did, I deserved a D. I think he was just being I nice. Oh, it. for sure, <laughs> for sure. I know it in my heart, but he just felt that I tried really hard. He knew I was on the way to medical school and I needed a good grade. But one of my fondest memories was when he just looked at me and said, Kim, you're such a good student. And I knew 
knew instantly, you know, with my high emotional intelligence, what he really, really meant. <laughs> so, so oh, you know, that funny. was that was something else. Um, socially. One of the highlights, so I'll tell a funny story at Caltech. So at Caltech, we're not known for being a party school, but that's not to say that we don't party, you know, and so... People uh, that say it like that do not party, <laughs> no. So, um, no, so, so there, are, there are, when I went to school, there were seven undergraduate houses, and each of the seven houses throw a party once a year. So there were seven parties to go to. Um, that's not to say you wouldn't show up in your friend's room and drink beer, like on a Friday night, you know, and have an instant party. Um, but as far as like large group parties, but because this is largely an engineering school, one of the things that we did was we would build our party. One of my most favorite parties that we built at my fraternity house was a submarine party. So we built a submarine in the courtyard. It's an old, you know, 1920s built uh, Mediterranean eclectic house, which means that it's got a courtyard. Okay. In the courtyard, we built for several weeks on end um, a submarine in which uh, the party was to be held. So because submarines are underwater. Yes. We built a platform at the at the top height of the submarine, lined it with black plastic, and filled it with water. So when our guests walked up to a fraternity, they walked up a stairway and then out on a pathway, and it all looked like water. Then they had to go down the ladder into the submarine, and then we put TVs in the portholes to show fish, and then the bartender was a mermaid. We had to, done a huge like rectangular cutout on the side of the submarine so the bartender could serve drinks to the people in the submarine. And it was fantastic. And so, and we who spent... Who are you? Who are y'all? That you, know? <laughs> you would do this elaborate it's, it's, party? But it's about, and you know, the houses are trying to outdo the other houses. And it's really a fan, just a fantastic time. And so, um, with all the trappings of a college party, underage drinking, um, loud music, bad clothes, terrible hair, awkwardness between, you know, uh, lovers, you know, whatever. So all the same trappings, um, except that we built our party. And, th you know, that was like some fun times. And we yeah. used to do beer and build. So in the weeks leading up to the party, there was a committee, a proper committee to decide what was the theme, what will we build. Then there would be a design. Then oh, I'm be, totally picturing you know, yes, the blueprints. The and design, the and then there would be a build schedule. There would be Home Depot runs. In the middle of the night, Home Depot is open 24 hours, which is a dream for a college student so yeah home depot runs a budget you know for this and we all pay house dues to be in the first so part portion of your house dues goes to your one party a year and you know that's what's happening that's what's happening at college and that was really really special yeah. you know no other college can say they're doing this you know and it was and it was fun Okay, so what is something, it could be an experience, a class, or an opportunity, do you regret not doing? Oh my God, there are so many regrets. I will tell you this, Yolanda. I am not the kind of person to say no regrets. I think that's not truthful, um, and it's disingenuous as a human. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, to be perfectly honest, I really regret not going back to medical school. You know, I had applied to, been accepted to, and never matriculated at medical school. And um, a handful of years later was getting ready to go back, and I never went back. Um, and, I, and I do still feel regret for that, even today. 
Why did you not go the initial time that you were accepted? Men. Um, men. men. <laughs> so men. <laughs> did you? I saw earlier this week, I can't remember what the animal was, but it was some, maybe it was a crab or I think it was some ocean marine animal that had, the female had mutated herself in a way that she could reproduce without men. Sure. <laughs> and then like people, women were responding like goals, like yeah. <laughs> hashtag goals. Oh, <laughs> so, okay. So there was a guy, there was a guy. Um, you know what? So I'll, I'll tell you a little bit of the longer story, but I know mm -hmm. our interview is getting long, but we can do part that one, part two. Um, there was a guy who was involved um, at that time when I was not matriculating the first time. Um, I, I had, I had a new job, so I had graduated from college. And you I was decided working, to stay in, mm -hmm, in California. California. I was working as a staff scientist at UCLA, okay. um, as sort of a gap year between undergraduate and medical school. Um, I was seeing someone who lived in California. And then additionally, I had gone on a sabbatical from my research job. So it was a research based, based job that I was hoping to parlay into an MD PhD program. Okay. So. Uh, not to get all serious on you, mm -hmm. but um, at that time, I also had become a new uh, a new sales consultant for Mary Kay Cosmetics, and I had progressed to become a sales director. This was right before I was becoming a sales director. So I'm assuming you started selling Mary Kay while you were in college? Uh, no, just after. Oh, so just and you after. progressed that quickly? Very quickly, in okay. about a year's time. So, and... What was amazing to me about this experience was a, a few different things. One, that there is a science to business. And that was very attractive to me. Um, I really like learning about things that have processes and methods because it says a few things to me. If there is a method, that means that anyone can do it. And so to me, that, to me that meant anyone can sell whether or not you think you have this sales personality or not. Um, and anyone can own a business, and anyone can run a business, right? And so being a part of a sales organization and a business where you sell for money was an eye-opening experience. You know, up until this point, I had seriously had an academic career. At that point, I had already published in a peer-reviewed journal, a, a mini-review, mm. before I was a graduate student. So... Um, I truly had this long-lasting career from sixth grade on that was very academic. And despite all the things that I had learned when I had my first sales job, I realized that I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything about the real world, about how it actually worked, and how the world went around. When I got my sales job, my eyes opened. I said, oh my God, sales makes the world go around. Mm -hmm. And it's true. Without sales and salespeople, money would not be exchanged. Goods and services would not be exchanged. And the economy would come to a grinding halt without it. And, you know, it really opened my eyes. And I thought to myself, what else do I not know about? Um, so, you know, I, I had this opportunity to sell and grow um, through my Mary Kay business. And for me, it was also a break from a long academic career. I always believed that I would go back to medical school when you're very young, you're thinking, well, I have time. So much time. Because I felt like I had time to go back when I wanted to. Um, 
And it's not so much that I regret not going the first time, but it's more like during my second opportunity, you know, why I didn't go back then. So you, did you put your admissions on hold or did it you have did. to go through the entire No, process so again? I did. I was able to request a leave of absence okay. and then I was granted a leave of absence. At the end of the year of my leave of absence, I had already become a sales director and I felt like I had really important work to do. Um, as a sales director, my job was basically to um, recruit, train, and mentor other salespeople. Most of these women were much older than I was. And, you know, my observation was that I was really giving a new sales set or, or skill set to women who mostly prior did not have any sales experience whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I felt that I was giving women an opportunity to earn extra income. I felt a lot of feelings about this, and I felt that it was so important. And it is important work. Um, and I felt like the reach and influence that I had doing this work as a sales director was really greater than being a clinician mm-hmm. or perhaps a doctor in private practice. Um, and so at that time, um, I really felt that it was the right decision for me. Um, and so I had requested a leave, was granted a leave. Um, I did not come back from the leave, so I forfeited um, my matriculation at school. And at that point, had I wanted to return, then I would have to reapply once again. And at this point now, I've been so long out that I would have to test again as well because there's all sorts of graduate exams, you know, so on and so forth. Um, you know, I had an, later, an, another opportunity later on in my late 20s, which I didn't take. At that time, I was getting married and having children. So, and I feel like in retrospect, I could have done it even then, you know, d- you know despite being Hello, pregnant you and worked three jobs <laughs> while you were at Caltech. <laughs> So you can but make you it more time. But you know what's interesting about the more, that, Yolanda? The less time you have to do stuff, the the I feel. And I'm not saying that this is how it works for everyone, but I always find that the busier I am, the more productive I am because I don't have time to bullshit. Like I just, absolutely. I'm in 100% agreement with that, and I used to say that all the time to all of my salespeople. And in sales recruiting at Mary Kay, it's something we said all the time. Busy people get stuff done. Mm -hmm. Because on your lazy day, what did you get done? Nothing. But on the day that you had to go across town and back and do X, Y, and Z, did you do that? Yes, and ABC too. So, you know, it's really, that really applies to everyone, and I really believe that. I wish I could just turn that switch on mentally where that was how I operated all the time. You can, Yolanda. How? I was, Tell me. You just decide. <laughs> I, I listened to the most inspiring interview of a book author. I can't remember the name of the author because this was my great takeaway. The interviewer said to the author, do you write on a schedule or do you only write when you're inspired? And this is what the author said. She said, I only write when I'm inspired. And I make for damn sure I'm inspired every day, Monday through Friday, from 9 to 5. Yeah. And it was really, I was really struck by that. Um, Because I don't know, you know, not knowing that author personally, um, you know, she said, I make for damn sure I'm inspired. Monday through Friday, from 9 to 5. And I don't know if that means she just sits down and says, get inspired, or if she actually does things to keep her inspired and engaged, or she just makes a decision to sit down and type, you know, so, but, you know, and so that was really inspiring to me, and I really, truly believe it's just a decision that you make, Mm -hmm. and this has been truthful for me in every part of my life. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so walk me through 
how you went from Mary Kay and working at UCLA, having a family, getting married, and how what that path was to how did the catering and becoming an executive chef, how did that happen? So my first And you can take it in sure in steps. My first restaurant job was in nineteen ninety six. So part of the way where I I paid my way while I was um, during a summer off from Tams, um, I had my first restaurant job. I worked as a hostess and then as a server and as a bartender and started cooking. And then when I got to Caltech, one of my jobs was working at the faculty club, which is a country club on the campus of Caltech. And I was a hostess and a server and a floor captain. And I also cooked and was a banquet manager there. So I worked um, in, in, essentially I worked in a country club to help pay my way through Caltech. So, you know, the hospitality industry was always there for me. And like I said before about my first sales job, one of the things I loved about my restaurant experience and I'm so glad that my first restaurant experience was at a huge multi-concept chain, was that um, I learned that there is a, a science to that business as well, and there's a way to do things. And so that's something that I really appreciated about it. And, you know, really being able to apply the scientific process to um, – that business was fantastic. As a captain at the country club, I was able to put forth um, new recruiting strategy. I put in place during my time there as a captain uh, a training schedule um, and a formalized training program for the new servers coming on. You know, many of these undergraduate servers had never even held a tray in their life or served anyone. Um, so really, implementing why systematic did, methods. Why were you tap to do those things because you were undergraduate like them so why why you why did they pick you so partially so partially because I had prior restaurant experience and secondary to that you know I really how can I put this I really care about excellence so one thing that people often say to me is that they say you must love x like whatever it is that I'm doing because you're so good at it, or you stick with it, or you try to do a good job. And that's actually not true. Mm -hmm. What I really love is being excellent. And, you know, so every job that I do, I try to be really excellent. Every job that I do, I try to contribute in a constructive manner. Every job that I do, um, I'm really thinking about how could this be better. And this is, this is, in part, it's self-serving because if I make it better, it's also better for me. And so this really comes down back to the idea of, of this Asian immigrant idea of excellence of like you're really honoring a whole bunch of people. But, but you also honor yourself. So when you're doing a good job at your employment, you are also making your life easier for yourself. Yeah. You know, if you're making new systems, contributing in a constructive manner. Um, you know, and I think that it's easy to lose sight of that. So, you know, I really had a quite high position in this country club before I left. And, you know, when I left school, that was the furthest thing on my mind because I had a degree yeah. and now I was going to go on to my real job, you know, um, over the years. So what happened was that uh, I was now a sales director at Mary Kay. My team had grown quite large. We had really great sales production. It was paid on commission. The commissions were pretty good. 
And, you know, I was a single young person in my mid to late 20s. And so, you know, the decision came next is that I can work more and sell more and help my salespeople sell more so that I can make more money or I can do some fun stuff or explore other things. So what I did instead was I did a master chef apprenticeship. Um, I got a restaurant job with the master chef and I just started cooking again. And, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. I, after I got married, um, I had my children and I went to work when my son was about 10 months to a year old okay. by starting my own business. Um, and it seemed like a very good idea at the time, mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, that it would be flexible and so on and so forth. And I was very familiar with the business and I had all the experience um, upon completing my Master Chef apprenticeship. And that's kind of how I ended up in the business again. Very twisty, turvy, curvy kind of way, yeah. you know. Okay, so what did you learn in the Master Chef apprenticeship that either opened your eyes up into the industry that you didn't see when you were working at the faculty club and other things that you had done? So when I did my Master Chef apprenticeship, I, well, I will say this, and this is not a statement of like, oh my gosh, Kim Vu is so great. You can say that. Okay, Kim Vu is so great. Um, But, you know, because I'm so attached to the idea of excellence, I have a very specific kind of work ethic. So when I did my apprenticeship, I always came to work early. I always came, uh, stayed late. I always had multiple sets of attire with me so that I would always have clean chef clothes on all the time. My hair was always done. My makeup was always done. My nails were perfect. And although I will say to any person, you know, does your work speak for itself and does a woman need to be aesthetically presentable Mm -hmm. to have good work product? The answer, truthfully, unbiasedly is no. You can, you know, have crazy hair and still do great work. But that's not how the outside world perceives you. And um, until the outside world, you know, is woke, (laughs) you have to play their game. Um, And in that industry, I'm mostly working with men. And there, but I do, I am attached to the idea that when we come to work professionally, there is a look to mm-hmm. that. Um, and so, you know, here I am coming early, staying late, looking professional, always dressed correctly and willing to do whatever it is that they need me to do. Um, so the willingness is there and also forward thinking. So while I was there during my master chef apprenticeship, as happened to me to every restaurant job or everywhere that I cooked, I moved very quickly from being a prep cook or a line cook to basically into management. I'm always pushed into a management role very quickly. What's the difference between a prep cook and a line cook? So prep cook, you're just in the back prepping way, chopping a lot of vegetables. That's where they would put me, like, we can trust you with chopping the vegetables. (laughs) Um, On the line, you're actually in the final food production for the food that hits the floor. So a prep cook would maybe come earlier in the day and make all the sauces, marinate the proteins, chop all the onions, the carrots, the celery. The line cook is on the line. He sees a ticket for an order, make XYZ chicken. You put the chicken in the pan that the prep cook already marinated and you're putting the finishing sauces, the finishing vegetables, you put it on the plate. So the line cook is actually a part of the actual meal service and the prep cook prepares all the ingredients Mm. beforehand. Um, And from there, there's a whole hierarchy of management um, and expedition and that's where I tend to go because I have the ability to do so the foresight and the communication um, and you know that's where I always get pushed to 
and I always have to fight to do actual real cooking. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, you know, so the last place where I was, I did a lot of sales. I did a lot of event production for the caterer. Um, I did a lot of management and management meetings. I really learned a lot about what not to do. What's an example of something that you should not do? There are so many things. Can I pick some? <laughs> you can tell me um, a couple. <laughs> you know what? I think it's just good record keeping in any business is key, but more so in the food business than anywhere else. It's a pennies business, and you really have to know where everything is going. Um, also, regarding your employees, clear communication is the key. And I believe in clear and firm communication, but also kind communication. Um, I worked for a person... I was on the opening team of a very popular club in downtown and you know like the owner used to say I don't want to see white china on our buffets anymore if I see it I'm going to throw it in the trash but that's all that the feedback would be and so finally I had to say to him if not white china and just imagine eating at restaurants Yolanda how many white china plates have you seen are we just not all eating on a white plate yeah, yeah we are there's a lot of white china mm -hmm. okay and it's cheap and so here we are thinking well, if not white china, what do you, what do we eat on? What do we plate the food on? Tell us, you know, it's not enough as an employer to say don't do this, but you also have to say do this. Um, and I think that in, I think that is the difference between management and leadership, um, and that's something that I experienced in many places where I worked before this. Okay. Okay, so there was something that you said that I wanted to ask you about. It was related to, because I think this will be a good thing to unpack because it can help other people to start approaching excellence in their jobs. But you said that you approach things from a science. Yes. There is a scientific method to everything. Tell me more about that. Okay, so in every <laughs> business, no matter what your business is, there is a process and a method by which you can work. And I'm telling you, it doesn't matter what your business is. You could be a painter, and there's a science and a method. And I'll say this. There is a science and a method to a business that earns money. Because if you are independently wealthy and want to just paint all day long, good for you. Please paint all you want and there's no method to your madness. However, if your intention is to work for money or have a business for money versus a hobby business or a for fun business, um, then there is a method. And it's really about systems development and organizational development. And I think that any good scientist would look at any business or any business person. I mean, a business person may not think of themselves as a scientist, but they really are. They're a scientist of business. So when you look at organizations, firstly, there's many levels of it. There's organizational development, which really has to do with information flow. When there's information coming to my business, is it able to flow to the right person to take care of that? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of decisions to be made that made there, like, one, do we accept the information? Two, do we reject the information? If we re accept the information, where does the information flow to? Who is the appropriate person and what is the most, most efficient flow of information to that person? What they, can they do about it and what shall be the result? So, I mean, this is just very simple flow chart thinking, which mm -hmm. mostly scientists are doing. Yeah. We're talking about simple if-then statements. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, this is how businesses are, are run, good businesses are run, um, and, you know, should be run because clearly there are also bad businesses that are not run well. So it really comes down to organizational development and systems development. So in organizational development, I'm referring to the development of people, the organization, their, um, and their structure. And then in systems development, it would be, you know, what those people are actually doing and how they handle information and how they output. So it's about input and output, input information, output information. Mm -hmm. And, you know, speaking in those terms, um, it's very scientific. These are terms that engineers would use. Yeah, Yeah, it is like, as you were explaining that, it's, it's really, truly an if this, then what? So the if is the information and the then is... Who does it and how do they do That's it? That's right. And, you know, when I trained salespeople, it really was, um, we used to say in sales, people will always disappoint you, but numbers never will. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what that meant, and this applies to not just selling, but, you know, anywhere where you need to be having volume, you know, in salespeople talk about their pipeline, their pipeline of leads. Well, you need X number of leads. And if you're doing X number of phone calls, you're getting X number of follow-ups. And if you're out of X number of follow-ups, you're getting, you know, X number of bookings. Mm-hmm. And out of the number of bookings, you're doing X number of closings. And out of those closings, this is the financial result of that. Mm-hmm. And working yourself backwards from what your monetary goal is, you can figure out how many leads do I need? And then start thinking about, well, how do I develop those leads? And that was really one of the things that really attracted me to having a sales job. Because in the past, you know, and people still say, um, you know, a born salesperson. But is that really the truth? You know, I, it's a yes and no answer, so I'll speak out of both sides of my mouth. I mean, certainly there are people with personalities who are more outgoing, or at least who can be out, more outgoing for money or for their job. Um, people who are naturally good at follow-up, people who are organized. So if you have those qualities, that may make you a better salesperson. But at the end of the day, every person can work themselves backwards from a financial goal and decide ultimately, how many leads do I need to make this end financial goal happen? And, you know, that is thinking like a scientist. Um, And so that has really, you know, in my professional career has always been the case. And there's always a scientific way to think about every business, Mm -hmm. provided that it's actually a business that is meant to make money. Yeah. So (laughs) (laughs) it's a big caveat, but yeah, I totally um, see that. What... Does a typical day look like for you? Oh my goodness. Okay. So my actual day looks like this. The way I approach my day is that I think of myself as the bottleneck. I am actually the bottleneck for my business. So before I do my own personal work, I always think, what information or work can I give to another person to allow them to do their work? Mm -hmm. So typically I walk into my business, I greet all of my employees so that they can feel connected to me in some way or so that they can feel that I see them. Mm-hmm. Um, I first check in with my kitchen staff because they typically have already been in production for an hour and a half to two hours before I arrive to work to see if they have any questions or if there's anything holding them back. Perhaps they need some ingredients, they have a question about the production, so on and so forth. Then I next have a meeting with my event producer who is now becoming a salesperson to make sure that if she needs information from me in order to continue to do her work, you know, can we get uh, there for her? Then I typically sit down and plan my day first before looking at any email or any voicemail whatsoever so that I can be proactive versus reactive. And for me, um, I am a very productive person. 
I use this system of power planning my day first rather than looking at the information for reaction so that I can be proactive first. This helps me to be more productive in my day. Then I use willful and selective ignorance to become more productive. And I actually, you know, what does that mean? (laughs) For example, so right now I have a client asking an urgent question who is client urgent to her. Mm. It is not actually urgent to me or to the production of her event. And so I'm willfully ignoring her email until it is more convenient to me, but yet I will still respond in a timely manner. Um, but it doesn't have to be done right now. Mm-hmm. And that's what my day looks like. Yeah. So I, but I start my day, but I will say this, Yolanda, I start my day on my first shift by being a mother. We do breakfast, we pack the lunches, we get children dressed, we get them out the door, we do the school drop-off, we hug and kiss. Then I go to my second job <laughs> at my catering business. Then I come home and do the third shift, which is opening backpacks, hugs and kissing, cooking dinner, doing the evening routine and homework, a bedtime routine. And then after that, I do a fourth shift. I get back on the computer. I go back to work. I answer emails. I write memos. I do accounts receivable. I do accounts payable at night. So that is what my day looks like. And if I can, I try to sleep. (laughs) So (laughs) you can. And you have like a commitment like one day a week because I think your kids love going to the beach. And so you do that like almost every I try, well, when it's warm, so it's not as warm right now. So I try very hard to maximize the time I have with my children. So as a result, my car is unwashed. It has a lot of trash in it. Today, Frankie uh, removed no less than two nasty banana peels and cups of coffee and hot chocolate and trash and snotty rags from my car Um, because to become a productive person, you also have to prioritize. And there are certain things you must let go of. There is not any way that any modern working mother could really just have a perfect life. You have two commodities in life. You have time and you have money. And typically, if you have more money, you have less time. But with more money, you can use your money to hire people to do things for you, like clean your house, be your assistant, take the trash from your car. I believe personally that people should put their money where their mouth is. And so if you say that relationships are important to you, you should spend time on the relationship and then spend money in making those relationships happen. Mm. So for me, that would mean that I would take my children to the beach and pay a cleaning lady. So, um, you know, the time that I have with my family and friends is very precious. I have precious little time. And, and then these children, you know, I gave birth to them. So, <laughs> you know, and I, of course, I, you know, of course I love all the people that I'm in a relationship with, but these in particular are my children. Mm-hmm. So, you know, puts them a step ahead of a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that's, I try to release, try hard to spend time with them in that manner. That's not always possible. If you catch me during my busy seasons, you know, I typically don't even see them for a good week straight. Mm. Okay. Let's see. What do I? Ooh, this is my favorite question. Okay. When did you recognize that your talents and skills were enough? Were enough? Um, no, I don't know that I feel that way, Yolanda. I don't know. I don't know that I actually feel like that they are enough. 
even though you have been, your business has been around for six years, you have a and I'll tell full-time you this, eight employees, 20 part-time people. And I'll tell you this to, to knock your socks even more. Last year, by myself, I sold $631,000 worth of food. You know, with no very little administrative help mm -hmm. um, and still cooking some of the food myself. Not very much. Mm -hmm. I don't, I only cook 10% of the food, uh, if that. Um, so no. why do you not think? And it's not about deserve level. Yeah. I think it's about being excellent, right? And so the idea is that I could always do better. I could always learn more. I could always sell more. Well, you can. That's not but to say, but that's not to say that I'm unhappy. Mm -hmm. um, I will say this. Um, I'm easily pleased, but I'm never satisfied. So I am pleased with what we have done. And we can do more, is how I will put it. Okay. Um, and, you know, because, you know, you can always be better. And I think that's what makes things exciting. I, but I think to the heart of your question, because I don't think that that's what you're actually asking. I think that your question is more of like, when did I feel like I was a good enough person? Or when did I feel like I deserved the success that I have? Mm -hmm. Or when did I feel, you know, that I was enough as a human? You know, and um, I can't say that I pinpointed any uh, particular time for that. I will say probably in the middle of it all, you know, when I saw where things were going. And I will say that, you know, crossing over 40, but even before crossing over 40, I'll say this about getting older. When you are young, you think you just know the fuck everything. It's part of my French. And that you can do anything. And the difference is, is when you get a little bit older, you realize you don't know everything and you can't do everything. But the next stage after that is knowing what you're really good at and owning it. And what are you really good at? I know that I am a clear communicator. I know that I have amazing leadership skills. I know that I'm a fantastic employer and that my employees, as lucky as I am to have them, they are extraordinarily lucky to be mentored and to be in my space. Mm. And I know this for sure. Mm. You know, and so um, I think that in growing in life and business and maturity, these are the stages that you're going through. You know, I'm able to speak to a client or to an employee and to say, I don't know that I can do that. Let me explore and I'll come back to you. I may not be able to perform that. And then this final stage I'm talking about is saying, listen, you know, in getting with conflict, whether it's personal or professional, knowing securely that I have communicated very clearly or I have led very clearly or that I'm actually a good employer because, you know, there are abuses all around from clients, employees, family members, and, you know, you have to know who you are, despite what they say. So, then we're going to go to a couple of rapid-fire questions. Okay. So, I'm going to ask you these questions, and then you tell me the first thing that pops into your head. Okay. So, what are five apps or services you can't live without? I cannot live without Instacart. Um, this is how I get my home groceries. Mm -hmm. I cannot live without 
I don't know. I don't use very many apps. Um, no. And it can be services, too. It can be services. services. Yeah. Um, I can't live without housekeeping. Yes. So let me look on my phone real quick. So I use Instacart all the time. I use housekeeping all the time. I use childcare all the time. I use, I'm, you know, I'm looking at this. No, that's really the top three. I need someone to care for my children. I need food to get in my house and I need my area to be clean. Um, I don't think that I need five. Yeah. Did you have a problem? Because this is something that I have seen from people who have the means. Because Instacart is, is, Instacart is great, but Instacart is also not cheap. So, and it's like a luxury, did you struggle? Because I find a lot of people struggle with paying someone to do that and feeling like, okay, you can do this, but it takes up time. So did you have like a, a problem with deciding to finally use it, even though you well, knew that you could really use it. Oh, well, I'll tell you. Here, I have a fourth app. Amazon Prime. Can't okay. live without Amazon Prime and subscribe and save. <laughs> I'm single-handedly <laughs> You do keeping, subscribe and save. Yes, I'm okay. single-handedly keeping Amazon in business, by the way. <laughs> um, I will tell you this, no. And here's how I've always thought about it mentally. I learned this in Mary Kay. Because in Mary Kay, of course, there's a lot of stay-at-home moms that come into this kind of business to work part-time, to earn side money, right? This is their side hustle. And I learned from my sales director early on. If you could pay someone less money than you could earn in that hour, then you net positive. And I can earn a lot of money in an hour. It was never a problem for me to have a housekeeper. I had a housekeeper as a single person <laughs> because I could go out and sell and earn more money in one hour than what I paid for the housekeeper. Mm. Um, and so I still feel that today. And then it was not a problem. Instacart cost me $150 a year. That's it. If you pay the annual one-time fee, it's $150, and you get unlimited free grocery deliveries as long as the delivery is over $35. Oh, you know, milk is already it. five bucks. It's totally worth it. I have a family of four that I'm feeding at home, and they deliver within two hours, and literally I could be at work going, oh, my God, what am I going to cook for dinner? Instacart, Instacart, and it's the groceries are on my doorstep when I get home. And for me, this is the way that I'm looking at it. A person who is growing their business and working at the level that I am would typically have an executive assistant and a personal assistant, potentially two assistants. Mm -hmm. I have neither of those things. But these apps and the money that they cost have allowed me to basically gain a digital personal assistant mm -hmm. and for me to be a working mother yeah. um, without paying someone fifty-two to $150,000 a year. Mm -hmm. I'm paying $150 a year or and $100 for, for Amazon Prime. You know, I'm paying $150 a year for unlimited grocery delivery and I order from Instacart 2 to 3 times a week. So who's getting who? You know, <laughs> like I think I'm the one who's winning here. Yeah. You know, and so um so Instacart is there for me, Amazon Prime and Subscribe Save is there, my housekeeping service, my childcare services. I can't live without these things yeah. so other than that there's no app or service better than wine like I <laughs> you know absolutely okay um what is something that you geek out about and you could talk about it for hours for hours love and relationships let me tell you I am the dating guru if you want that man I'll tell you how to get him <laughs> 
So, <laughs> you know, love and relationships. What else could I talk? I could really, I could talk about business. I could talk about the business of business or the science of business all day long. Mm-hmm. I could talk about love and relationships all day long. Um, I could really talk about how things work all day long. Um, those are the things that I really love and care about. Yeah. Very cool. Okay. So who are your possibility models? So these are women of color who show you it's possible to live your dreams, or it could be a woman that you think more people should know about. Hmm. This is a very interesting question. So I think, so there is a marketing CMO in Los Angeles named Jamie Sekou. And she, um, oddly enough, I don't actually know her. We were connected through a mutual Facebook friend. Um, but you know, she has this extremely active Facebook post and I learned recently that she's a divorced person and I didn't know that about her. And you know, it was just really a tidbit, but it really changed my mind, um, about her and you know, in this current society, so much of our value as a woman is attached to a man. And I think that the divorced people, divorced women in particular, are looked at as broken individuals. This is not actually, as we know, true. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I found this to be really encouraging and inspiring because it's very easy to look at successful women and even harder to look at them if they're thin and beautiful, you know, um, and say, like, is she a role model for me? But she's so smart or so thin or so beautiful and so successful and so unattached and so without children and so without obstacles. And that is not true. And so seeing her post about this, you know, told me she has obstacles too. Yeah. So, and she's a Korean woman. I believe she's a Korean okay. I know she's of some sort of Asian person and I'm being totally racist and just saying she's Korean. <laughs> um, she may not be. Uh, so, you know, I really have always, um, you know, since being sort of this Facebook follower of hers, just really sort of admired her. Um, so, if people wanted to find you online, where should they go? They should go to vocacious.com. Not vivacious uh, or vivacious, vocacious. With a C, <laughs> just like how it sounds, V-U-C-A-C-I-O-U-S dot com. Um, there they can connect to me there. They'll see the Facebook, they'll see the Instagram, they'll see all the stuff, mm-hmm. which I don't post to. My people post there. Okay. Well, I love it. Okay, so now to the final question. The name of this podcast is called How She Did It. If you could go back in time and give yourself some career advice, what would you say? I would say stand up for yourself. I have typically always worked in an industry that was male-dominated. And very interesting enough, in all of my jobs, I had more strength when I was younger, which I attribute to ignorance and naivete. But as I got older and experienced life and experienced, quote-unquote, the way things are, um, you get beat down and by both women and men. And I would say, stand up for yourself. Stand up for yourself. There were many times where I did not stand up for myself when I should have, if not for my own benefit, but for the woman who came after me. And that's the show. For links to the people and things we discuss in this episode, go to howshedidit.club forward slash 13.